but she stands alone. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy 2020. Happy 2020 to you. And Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. New Year's Eve was in Tishrei. Don't you just love the people who say that when you wish them a happy new year? It was three I, months ago. I love like the people who are not year. a new decade. 2020 is the last year of this decade. <laughs> the Times got it all run. No year end, no decade end roundups. I'm saving mine for next December. I can't right. wait to read those. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we talked to literary critic and tablet contributor Adam Kirsch, who is coming to the end of his seven and a half years of reading a page a day of Talmud. That's the Daf Yomi Talmud reading cycle. And he's going to talk to us about what it's like to do the better part of a decade, a page a day of ancient Jewish scripture. It's an extraordinarily interesting interview. We've pre-recorded it and it is so interesting. He will make you want to break out the Talmud for the next seven and a half years. Or grab any other book and read just a page a day for a decade. And we have a special appearance of the three of us on the podcast, Your Last Meal, which is hosted by our favorite Pacific Northwest Jewess, Rachel Bell. But first, uh, let me tell you a little bit about where we are, like literally and figuratively. Literally, we are all in our homes this week. We're doing a remote recording setup. None of us is with any of the rest of us. We're all just kind of zooming in together. And we were going to do a really kind of light post-Hanukkah, pre-New Year's Eve banter uh, and just say, hey, we have some interviews for you. We're just catching up. Um, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Festivus, and then check out. It was going to be a really frivolous little top of the show. And then we were going to go to some pre-recorded stuff. And then, of course, Muncie happened. And as you know, a few weeks ago, Jersey City happened. And all of a sudden, it seems like we're back in some really, really dark times. It's, it's, it's not quite Pittsburgh, but it feels Pittsburgh-ish. Um, man walks into a rabbi's house in Muncie, New York, a town that has a, a very, very large Orthodox population. And he stabs five people and then flees. And um, the, the alleged suspect is captured with the, the victim's blood still on his hands. And then we have this challenge as a podcast, because when we didn't do a big show about the Jersey City shooting a few weeks ago, we got an angry email from someone who said, oh, you know, Pittsburgh Jews merit a whole big show. You guys drive to Pittsburgh and you do a special episode. And now a couple deaths in Jersey City. And it's like, oh, you mentioned it a little bit, but it's not a big deal. And, you know, we hear that, but we as a podcast are faced with this issue, which is In a country and in a world where there seems to be more anti-Semitism and there definitely is a lot more anti-Semitic violence over the past year or two, are we going to turn over our show to this really horrific stuff every time it happens? Or do we have an obligation to keep being happy, excited, joyous, proud Jews? Isn't that what people come to us for? Aren't you coming to us not to re-report and wring our hands over news that you guys have already been hearing but instead to be a place where we remember how simply delightful it is to be Jews in America in, uh, in 2019, 2020. So what do we do? What do we do with that? And, and we argued about that. We got on the phone, the three of us, with our producer, Josh, and we said, like, how are we going to handle this? And frankly, even if we wanted to handle this, even if we wanted to give up every show 
for the coverage of the latest atrocity. Like at some point, not to be glib about this, but it would turn into some kind of demented Mad Libs. It'll be like, could you believe the blank attack against Jews in blank? And it will be just kind of like a weird fill in the fill in the gaps. And, you know, this is really dark, but it, it reminds me a little bit of how every time there's a mass shooting, The Onion runs the same article. The headline is no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Um, and they basically just update the, the opening paragraphs to say what happened next. And that's obviously satire and it's biting satire, but it it feels like we're in a dark, scary time. And I think, you know, the interesting thing for us is I'm trying to process this both personally and also for an audience of people who also want help with how to process it. And I think that's a real challenge. And I hope that we can rise to that. Let me just add that being a podcast host is not so different in a weird way from being a dad. You know, on the one hand, I want my kids to know what's going on in the world, or I want to acknowledge it if they come across the news. We don't sit around at dinner and talk about the Muncie stabbing, but if they come to me because they've heard about it, I have to be frank and I have to validate that and I have to hear them out. On the other hand, I very much feel like the job of a dad is to keep our household and keep their lives joyful and positive and affirming and not scary. So, it, you know, that's that's what we do for each other. We want to validate and acknowledge, but then we also want to say yes, and we are excited to be alive and we're excited to be Jewish. I agree. This does feel like being a dad. Precisely. <laughs> exactly what you were thinking. So what we thought we would do this week is have a little roundtable. Each of us has some thoughts on the Muncie stabbing and doing Jewish in December 2019. And then we have two interviews for you that are, um, I, I'm not going to say frivolous, but but light in the most wonderful possible way. So uh, a little uh, nutrition and then a lot more dessert. Stephanie, what, what did you think uh, when this stabbing happened in Muncie? Where did your mind go this week? You know, the interesting thing to me and the phrase that sort of kept coming up in my head is this idea of first they came for the Jews. We say that all the time, right? Any any anti-Semitism in America in any country is sort of symbolic of a real rot at the core of that civilization. And we've seen that throughout history. But what we really mean, I think, when we say that is, is first they come for the visible Jews, right? There was an article that said there were, were alleged attacks on Jewish New Yorkers almost every day last week. Those were all Hasidic or, or visibly Jewish Orthodox Jews. And it's sort of interesting what that means, because first of all, it means that people who look like us are just the next ones, right? You know, we're not so far removed from this. But it also means that it, it's really making me think about what it means to be visibly Jewish and not in the way that, you know, Chabad knows to ask me, are you Jewish on the street? Because I'm, you know, wear glasses and have brown hair, but really what it means to go out in the world and, and really wear the trappings of outward Judaism. And that actually is now something that means you could come under threat. I think that's right. And people who are visibly orthodox are on the front lines for us. And I just think that's a really important point that you make, Stephanie. It just has to end because to the extent that there's anti-Semitism on the rise, they're going to bear the brunt of it. And in a way, almost therefore we don't. And um, there are people, you know, they're family. Uh, Liel, what do you think? Okay, so look, I'm of two minds here and two thoughts. The first, and this is not the first or last time that I'm saying this, is that this drives home to me, and I know this is going to rankle some of our listeners, but the supreme importance of giving Jews the ability to defend themselves. I firmly believe that there is no better response to being attacked repeatedly in this way than standing firm, being armed, and knowing how to use your firearm. And I believe this is something that a lot of our listeners who are really not comfortable with the whole notion of guns are going to have to reckon with. But I don't want to talk about that. I actually want to get back to what Stephanie is saying and Mark, what you were saying before too. I think this is completely correct. And I think that 
it inspired me to do two things. The first is, you know, I'm not making any big declarations here, and, and this is not kind of a, a huge life change, but I, I kind of think I'm going to wear a kippah from now on. I kind of think it's the right thing to do, not only because, you know, my own journey has been one of increased observance, but because the observance really is the point. Look, this happened on the last night of Hanukkah, right? And one of the great commandments and joys of Hanukkah is Pirsumenisim, which means advertising the miracle, right? The reason we have to put the menorah on the windowsill is to show the whole world that we're so proud of this great big miracle that happened to us all these years ago. And the miracle happened to us, as we talked about on last week's show with Rabbi Ari Lamb, because we insisted to keep on being Jewish, not just kind of saying like, oh, you know, we're Jewish or we're culturally Jewish, but actually, you know, we're, we're practicing Jews in some kind of way. We are doing something Jewish, not just accepting that this is a fundamental point of who we are, but actually working hard at it. So I think that's kind of the answer. The answer is to do more Jewish. So next time I see you, you're going to be a keeper wearer? I think we need to determine what kind of keeper now. Both what kind of keeper and what kind of gun, it sounds like. That's right. Do they have to match, by the way? Is it like... I wear my Glock with my black leather kippah, but when I have my Nachman thing, I need like an AR-15. <laughs> so, Liel, since you just dropped this bombshell on us, I, I do want to ask, and kol kavod to you, but I do want to ask, who in your life is going to be most surprised? Like, what? Who's whom are you kind of almost afraid of the reaction of when you show up on a non-Shabbat, non-holiday wearing a yarmulke? I think it's your coworkers. <laughs> I, I believe it's maybe you two. They're like, <laughs> What? What is this? What is this beanie on your head? Uh, look, I, I I don't know how long this would last, and and there are some issues here because you know I'm not a hundred percent orthodox in in my observances. I don't know that anyone is a hundred percent orthodox. I don't, I don't know that it's so. the point to be a hundred percent anything. But it's really important to me to walk down the street exactly as you guys said and telegraph to the rest of the world. Hey, you know, if you hate this. I am 100% that. And if you have a problem with that. the rest of the world that if you want to get up in a six foot five. Exactly so. If you want to attack someone, don't attack, you know, poor little Shlomo. Attack like IDF veteran, angry, bear Jew, Leah Leibowitz. That's who you're attacking, who may or may not be armed. I mean, this makes me want to do something too. Now I'm sort of even, even happier that I have a mezuzah on my door because that means that every day when the people around me leave their apartments, they see that like, a Jewish person lives here and they're just that sort of like in their mind. And it's something that I think I sort of fought against for a long time. But now I'm like, oh, I get it. This is important. And, you know, there was a great tweet by Mordechai Lightstone. He does a lot of um, social media stuff for Chabad, which are, you know, in New York, the guys who are the most visibly Jewish, right? Because they're the ones who stand on the street and ask other people if they're Jewish. Um, and he's at Muchel on, on Twitter. And he says, what to do? Put up a bigger mezuzah. Put your menorah where all can see. Tell the Starbucks barista your Jewish name when ordering a coffee. Be vigilant, yes, but never, ever be afraid. And first of all, I just love the idea of me going up to the Starbucks barista and being like, Chava Rachel? I can barely say it, but you should be able to spell it. But That's know, Rachel with a chet and, 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 a sh and a schwa. But of course, the second, you know, the, the tweet thread, the follow-up, he says, by the way, if you're Jewish and don't have a mezuzah, message me. I've got one for you. Right. A bigger one for you. There's something that I think is going through a lot of Jews' brains right now, which is, you know, it's sort of coming home to roost, right? It's it's the time where if you don't really consider yourself super Jewish or you don't really do a lot of stuff, I think the Muncie attack, the way Pittsburgh did, like that it happened on Hanukkah, that it's at the end of this like several week period of, of extreme, you know, escalating violence. And it was a stabbing. I mean, it's so 
gory, I think people have two choices. And I understand. I mean, I live the urge to sort of want to closet that, right? Closet your identity. But I think there is something, because it's Hanukkah, because of that story we heard last week, I mean, I want I want to embrace the idea that we should be publicly Jewish. You know, we should not be afraid of that. Amen, Sela. So I couldn't agree more. And Liel is going to wear his yarmulke. And I hope, I just want to put in a vote for one of the Reb Nachman, one of the Breslover yarmulkes that says Na Nachman, you know, around the, the, that's knit around the edge of it. There's a kid at my shul who wears, you know, who's no kind of Breslover, right? He goes to this conservative shul, but he got a Breslover kippah over in Israel. And that's the one he wears. And, you know, it's black with the white lettering and, and that says Reb Nachman. And I just, that's the one I want you to wear. I, I want you to do that. And it comes with a free tab of LSD to get you in the spirit. And Stephanie flying her mezuzah flag. As for me, I just went, that's why I had a fifth kid. So that I was representing his, you know, I can just walk down the street and people are like, what kind of religious crazy is he? That's right. I feel like I'm doing my bit. Amen to what both of you guys said. My overriding feeling has just been, says something about me, but my mind just went to the presidential race and I thought, oh my God, I just want normal. Now we're a nonprofit podcast. We don't endorse candidates, but I'll just tell you that there's nothing at stake here because my first impulse was bring back pasty-faced, super bland, Mr. Western Mountain State nice guy, John Hickenlooper. I don't want anyone trying to nationalize anything on the left. (laughs) I certainly don't want anything on the right. I just give me bland. Give me something. You want the most boring milk toast candidate you could find. Right, you, you basically you want to look at at the, at the Democratic list, and whoever is polling at like half a percent, exactly, that's the president. That's exactly right, <laughs> and I want to, I, you know, mad props uh, to Sid Oppenheimer, who like a year ago said she wanted the ticket to be Hickenlooper Castro, and right now that's exactly what I want. I want Hickenlooper Castro. For You're like, I want a presidential candidate who's like a warm oatmeal bath. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I want. That is what our country needs to get back to normalcy. By the way, that would be a great reality show. Like the search for the most boring American. And that person, <laughs> we're just going to find some some CPA, no offense to, to all the accountants out there. We need them now more than ever. <laughs> Someone who's very, very predictable and dependable. And you're the president now. By the way, you know, by the rules of like viral fame, the person they find is going to have like a horrible Reddit history oh, absolutely. of like misogyny. You know, you can't find anyone. <laughs> uh, J. Crew, take a second out from plotting the J. Coup. And let us know what you think. We certainly don't think we've gotten this all right, either as a podcast and how to handle these episodes when they happen, or in terms of our own impulses about what American Jews need. So collectively, you guys will have at least as much wisdom as we have. Share it with us at 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You know what I would actually really love to hear, like the specific things that you guys are doing. Um, did you put your menorah in the windowsill instead of on the table? You know, are you going to synagogue or to an interfaith event? Like, or what are you doing? What are you doing with your family? What are you doing with your community? How are you coping with this? Um, I think we all would love to hear your, your stories and we'll share them on the air. Yes, we will. So a few weeks ago, you may remember, we said, we're going to do a dinner in New York City and it's going to be on us and we're going to light some candles and have dinner with all of you. And we put the call out and you guys said, hell yeah. So we had a ton of people sign up. We had to choose at random. So there will be 20 of us dining tomorrow night at the Freehand New York. I'm really excited. You know, when we talked about how we were going to deal with Muncie, I think the thing I thought was, I'm so excited to sort of like have a Jewish meal and sit together in community with our unorthodox people. And that to me is just 
I think that's what we need as a community. And so I'm excited. Hopefully we can do more of these. Hopefully you guys can start hosting them in, in your cities. If we go to a city, we can do one there. I mean, I think for 2020, this seems to be the important focus. I think it's the best thing to do. I mean, if, if you're looking for something to do, if like so many of us, you're feeling so frazzled and, and anxious, here's kind of a no-brainer Jewish solution. Eat something. You look hungry. <laughs> you look hungry. <laughs> Are you eating enough? Sit down with other Jews. We'll have a great conversation. We may sing a Shabbat song or two. We light the candles. We'll say a blessing. It'll just feel warm and special and lovely. It'll just be so good to start off the year. This is the first Shabbat of 2020. Just let's 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 just be together. Podcast is one thing and it's great, but we, we actually want to go further in 2020. This is how communities are built. And hopefully this will be the first of a million of those. And I'm hungry, guys. Those of you in the J Crew who read Tablet Magazine, the magazine that produces this year' podcast, know Adam Kirsch. Adam is a writer, author, and prolific contributor to Tablet, and for seven and a half years, he's been writing a column about working his way through the Daf Yomi cycle, a page a day of Talmud. Stephanie and Liel sat down with him as he neared the end of his Talmud reading. Hello, Adam. Hello. Thanks for having me. We should say before we even let you talk or ask you any questions, really, and I don't think I've ever said this on this podcast in four years, not only one of my favorite writers, just one of my favorite people. That's so nice. Thank you so much. I'm so happy. That means here. a lot. Thank you. It's also weird because I know you and I know what you look like, but as someone I read online a lot, it's weird to see you. Right. That I have a physical being. Yeah. It's not just all pixels on a screen. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Somewhere there's someone <laughs> typing on a keyboard. So congrats on existing. Thank you. Let's start with uh, a question. WTF is Dafyomi. So Dafyomi is a Hebrew phrase meaning a page a day, a daily page. And it's a way of reading Talmud, studying Talmud, where you do a page a day. And at that pace, it takes about seven and a half years to get through the entire Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud. And it's everyone around the world reads on the same schedule. So we're coming up in the beginning of January on the end of the 13th cycle. And then the very next day on January 5th, the 14th cycle will begin. So if you're interested in doing this crazy thing, the time is coming when you can dive in with the first page on January 5th. You are writing about this weekly, right? So you basically write about the last week of those pages. More or less weekly, yeah. But you're not necessarily like a Talmud scholar. People know you as a literary critic, as a, as a writer. You have a great book, The People in the Books, 18 Classics of Jewish Literature. So you come at it from a, a different perspective, I imagine, than most. Definitely. I mean, the classic way of doing Dafyomi is in a study group with a study partner, with a rabbi. Um, there are some great podcasts and recorded lectures you can listen to, but it's sort of a group process. And mine has been more independent. I've been following along in an English edition, uh, the Steinsaltz Talmud translated into English, and keeping pace with the weekly cycle and writing about it every week or every other week. So it's definitely been a non-traditional way of doing Dafyomi, but one that I've really enjoyed and learned a lot from. A lot of our listeners have flirted with the idea of one day cracking open this book and then they do, and they see this really weird layout with the columns and the commentary, and, and it doesn't look like anything you've seen, and it has this structure that may be a little bit odd. If you were to give a complete newcomer 
some words of advice on how to emotionally, spiritually, intellectually approach this task of reading this book? What would it be? Well, when I started, I was a complete newcomer. I did not do any Talmud study growing up. As I got older, it was something that I always felt like I was missing, like I, I wanted to know more about this. So I started, and I was using this English edition translated by Rabbi Steinsaltz into modern Hebrew, which has then been translated into English. And they do it in a very accessible way, which is in addition to having the traditional Talmud page at the back of the book, the way it's translated into English is much more of a conventional flow. So there are footnotes and there are notes on the side of the page that explain central concepts, but it's not the same traditional Talmud page that you think of when you think of a page of Talmud. That traditional page has text in the middle and then traditional commentaries printed around the sides and in specific order so that you're really flashing back and forth between the centuries as you look at a single page. So your columns are sort of different than what Tablet publishes. And each week I love to read the columns, but I also like to read how the Tablet editors sort of promote these. And you see a lot of very funny things. So for example, in this week's Staff Yomi, why are Jews allowed to drink milk at all? Plus what Talmudic rabbis misunderstood about menstruation and the sources of other bodily fluids. Also the right way to sacrifice a donkey. So give us a sense of like what you're working with subject-wise. Right. So one thing that I discovered about the Talmud right away when I started this project is that there's an ostensible subject for every chapter and every tractate. The Talmud is divided into tractates, and each tractate has a, a subject, and each tractate is divided into chapters, which take on different parts of that subject. But the, the truth is that it can go anywhere at any time, and there's a lot of free association or digression and things go together that you would never have expected to go together. So the rabbis can start off talking about one thing and end up with something completely different. Because you know Jews. Right, exactly. And and that's sort of one of the places where that Jewish tendency comes from, right? When you think about Jews like to talk, Jews like to argue, the Talmud is all about arguing. It's all about rabbis arguing about what the law is and what it should be. And you never know sort of where they're going to go next. So you have to go with the flow. You have to be prepared to follow them where they are headed. And one thing that's been challenging for me as someone who didn't grow up Orthodox, didn't grow up knowing a lot of the basic stuff that the rabbis are talking about, is that they're not laying it out from the first idea. They're not starting with A. They're starting like with Q or R. And they expect you to know all the basic stuff already. And then they get into specific problems and specific situations that might arise. So you have to sort of infer a lot of what they're talking about. Let's talk about the origins of this really miraculous, magnificent book. Here are the rabbis, right? It's more or less 70 AD, and the temple has been destroyed, and all of Judaism as we know it is now impossible because it was a religion that you know revolved around sacrificial work at the temple. And so they think, well, you know, here's how we preserve it. We put it into a book. But rather than just a book of laws, which then people could either reject or accept, they choose to basically write down all their arguments as a preeminent literary critic, what's the logic of that from, from a literary standpoint? Well, the Talmud is, is very different from any other book I've ever read, and there's really nothing like it in sort of secular literature, because as you're saying, it's not a list of laws. It's really a transcript of discussions. So the discussions take place in two levels or two stages. First, there's the Mishnah, which was the collection of laws that had been handed down orally for generations, and then they were written down around the year 200. And in the Mishnah, there you'll often have an authoritative opinion and then a lot of dissents, sort of like in a Supreme Court decision, all the dissents are recorded. So one opinion is the way the law is, but then it'll also tell you, well, Rabbi Meir thought it should be something else. And there are a couple of other people who will be quoted with different views. Then on top of that, there's the Gemara, which is the second layer of Talmud. And that records even more elaborate debates that went on over the next several hundred years by rabbis who were studying the Mishnah. So 
when you get to the end of it, it's really an enormously long and complicated set of discussions. And sometimes you don't really know from reading Talmud what the law is. And that's one of the reasons why so much Jewish literature and so much energy over the next 2,000 years has gone to codifying Talmud and figuring out exactly what we're supposed to do based on these discussions. Because the discussions are sort of right. ends in themselves. What's the bottom line here, guys? Right, exactly. Yeah, the discussion was. Now, the thing that really blew my mind the first time I encountered this book, which was when I was a teenager, again, having grown up in a largely secular environment, is that you expect it to be this sort of pristine, holy work. And then you get to a chapter and it's a bunch of dudes and they're saying things like, oh, everyone who knew Rachav, the prostitute from the book of Joshua, just by mentioning her name, you could ejaculate right away. And you're like, wait, what? I'm reading the Talmud now? So I'm wondering what are some of the kind of these stories, anecdotes, legends that you came across that really impressed you? So there are sort of two elements that people talk about being in the, in the Talmud. There's halakha, which is the law. And that's probably about 80% of what's in there is just discussions about what is the law in any given situation. And then the other 20% is agada, which is all kinds of lore, myths, legends, discussions, gossip, uh, historical anecdotes. And that's often the most interesting stuff. And when I'm writing about it from week to week, I'm often tempted to just focus on that because that's the most interesting part. So just this week, there was this completely crazy story about a girl who got pregnant at the age of seven because the rabbis are talking about from what age is it possible for a woman to get pregnant. And then some other rabbis say, that's impossible. That could never have happened. You can't get pregnant that young. And another rabbi says, yes, it was. This happened to this person. A lot of the stories are things like that to illustrate some point that they're talking about. And I imagine there was no conversation about how this girl would have gotten pregnant. Right. Well, that's a whole other story. The Talmud's view about marriage, of course, is very different from what ours is today. But it is very frank about sexuality. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is we might think of it as a religious book and a holy book, and it certainly is that. It's not holy in the sense that it turns away from the world. It's the exact opposite. It's all about everything that happens in ordinary human life, everything from sex, going to the bathroom, to things like business matters, real estate transactions, all the way to crimes that require capital punishment. I mean, I will say that those of you, and and I hope many, many, many will, who decide to pick up this book and study it, the very first tractate, Brachot, has a really phenomenal spell about bathroom practices, I can say. Can you spoil it for us? Right, exactly. Give us a taste of what's to come. <laughs> That's right. At the beginning, the first tractate in the Dafyomi cycle is Brachot, which is about when you say various blessings. And one of the things that they get into is what are you supposed to say and do when you're using the toilet and what you're not supposed to say and do when you're using the toilet. And then from there, it gets into things like how do you wipe yourself and what's the best way to do that and where do you wash your hands? So you get these like almost novelistic right. looks at what was life like in the year 300 in the land of Israel or in Babylonia which is sort of amazing little things preserved in amber. And if your emotional age is 12, you get comedy gold. Definitely. One thing that I thought about is this is the book that Jewish boys studied as their main education for centuries and centuries, starting from a very young age. And how did they like deal with a lot of this stuff? Because it is the kind of thing that would make you crack up if you were six or seven years old. So reading your columns, because that is sort of my introduction to Dafiomi, was not a term I heard ever before I started working in Tablet and before you took on this project. A lot of it is about like animal sacrifice and animal slaughter and and ritual purity and these things that do not seem relevant at all today. So what is it that you're gleaning from this ancient text that you're actually finding to be, I imagine, hopefully relevant to today's life? 
Well, it's interesting. Even when the Talmud was written down and compiled, a lot of it was about things that were completely out of date because the sort of first layer, the Mishnah was written down around the year 200, and then the Talmud, the Gemara, was written down maybe around the year 400 or 500. And the temple, as they all said, where all the sacrifices happened, had been destroyed in the year 70. So this is people writing about things that were as distant from them as like the American Revolution is to us. But for them, it was very, very important to figure out exactly how everything that happened in the temple was supposed to go. First, as a matter of theory, like it's just they wanted to nail it down for their own sense of completeness, but also because they believed that at some point Moshiach would come and the temple would go back into operation and they were going to have to know how to operate it. So it was like it was this state of suspension like cryogenically frozen, where they had to keep up this knowledge so that one day they would be able to thaw it out and start using it again. In later codifications of the Talmud and uh, books of Jewish law, there's a division between some commentators will include all that stuff and other commentators don't include it because they say it's not relevant anymore. No one needs to know, you know, what order you're supposed to do the animal sacrifices or how do you measure out the flour into the bowl when you're pouring it onto the altar. That's not relevant to ordinary Jewish life. But for the rabbis, it was very important stuff to know. And a lot of it is self-contained and not really applicable to anything else, but you never know when there's going to be something there that does grab you or leap out and you say, oh, this is something that is related to our own time or this has other implications. Although even if you consider it irrelevant, I love what you said before, it is kind of a perfect training for a novelist, right? Because it's literally the belief that you could take something that doesn't exist or at least hasn't existed for 500 years and contain it, maintain it, uh, retain it completely in great detail as a thing on a page. Absolutely. And there's something very moving about it because you have these rabbis, and this is the Babylonian Talmud. So the Talmud comes in two sort of versions. One is the Yerushalmi, the Talmud that was written down in Palestine. And the other is the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud that was written down in what's now Iraq. And at that time, Iraq, that area, Babylonia, was the more advanced and the wealthier and had the better Talmudic academies. So that's the more authoritative Talmud. But these are people who were living hundreds of miles away from where the temple had been. They'd never seen it. They'd never even seen the ruins of it. They were living hundreds of years after it had fallen. No one alive knew anything about what really happened there. So they were reduced to sort of guessing based on verbal hints, even things like how was the courtyard laid out, like which corner of the courtyard did things happen in. They didn't have any architectural plans. They didn't have any drawings to look at. So they're really trying to reconstruct this whole building in their mind. And it's sort of like if you were to say to someone after Manhattan was like destroyed by a nuclear bomb to say, now draw a map of Manhattan and figure out where everything was, but based solely on people's memories of it. So speaking of these guys who compiled this incredible book, they are all over the place in the Talmud. It is a book of these great rabbis having these amazing conversations, and they do kind of arrive as you read as distinct I don't want to call them characters because that suggests they were fictional but you really do get a very good sense of their personalities who are your favorites? Well, the one who has the most vivid backstory definitely is Reish Lakish, who was a former gladiator who would fight in the arena and then one day met up with a rabbi and had an adventure with him and decided that he was going to give all that up and become a very a erotic adventure. I right, involving say. his sister, yeah. right? What, ah. tell, remind me of the details. Well, he saw Rabbi Yochanan, who apparently was very smooth-skinned and very fat, but at the time was considered very attractive. He saw him bathing uh, in the the lake and he thought he was a woman and so he approached him and then the two had a discussion 
And Rabbi Yochanan, being this terrific scholar, said, hey, you know, why don't you lay down your sword and join me? And the legend goes that as soon as Reish Lakish accepted, all his physical strength left him, and he became this great, big Talmudic scholar, second only to Rabbi Yochanan, and married his sister. And married his sister. When the rabbis look back at the Torah, they often reinterpret everything having to do with physical strength as really a metaphor for intellectual strength. Mm -hmm. So the Talmud is— Again, they're they're Jews. Right. Well, when you think about what, where does that Jewish intellectualism come from, the Talmud is really the sort of source of it, but it's a very different idea of what it means to be Jewish than you find in the Torah. The rabbis of the Talmud are always referring to the Torah. They're always quoting verses from the Torah. But if you look at biblical characters like King David, they're really gangsters and warriors and tough guys. And when the rabbis who lived a thousand or 1500 years after them go back and read these stories, you can tell that they're thinking, you know, this is not what Judaism is to us. This is not our role model. Our role model is someone who sits in the study house all day and learns. Mm -hmm. So they'll reinterpret David. There's one point in the Bible, David is said to have slain two regiments in one battle, and the rabbis say, actually, this is a metaphor, and what it really means is that he studied two tractates. <laughs> so they in want- one day. He slayed In them. one day, right. They want a totally different kind of ideal. So as a modern human reading this, how do you square stuff like guys marrying their sister, seven-year-olds getting pregnant? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is deeply problematic, particularly when it comes to gender. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I have the best of both worlds, which is that I'm interested in this text and able to study it, but don't feel like I have to live by. So most people who spend time with Talmud are Orthodox Jews who, in one way or another, are regulating their lives in accordance with Jewish law, and for them, the Talmud is the ultimate source of that law. Now, you can't always go from what's in on a page of Talmud to what Jewish practice is, both because things changed a lot over time, and even in the Talmud itself, it's not always clear how close to reality it was. I mean, these were like the equivalent of elite university professors in a college somewhere talking about Jewish law. It's very hard to go from that to say, well, what did the average Jew who who lived on the street or was a merchant or worked on a farm, what was his life like? What was his practice like? A good example is in the Talmud, it's taken for granted that men can have multiple wives, which as it is in the in the Bible as well. In the Bible, men always have lots of wives. It's a sign of wealth and strength, and Solomon had a hundred wives. And in the Talmud, it's taken for granted that a man can have several wives. And that was the case until around the year 1000, when Jews started to live in Europe among Christians who only had one wife. And they said, okay, well, we're going to change the law. From now on, Jews can only have one wife. So that was a pretty dramatic shift that was influenced by the world that the Jews were living in. And the same thing happens today. Orthodox Judaism today is very affected by the values and the practices of the world around it. From my own point of view, I feel very free to say this is an ancient text. It was written 1,500, 2,000 years ago. People had a very different idea about human nature, about what was right and wrong, about how the universe worked. And we don't have to follow it today, but it's still interesting and important to know about it, to know what they thought. So you don't have a moment in which you come back home and say to your wife, hey, honey, so I was reading the most interesting thing <laughs> in the Talmud today about multiple wives. No, no I've never. Here. I've never. Well, I do discuss it every week with my son, who's 12 and, and studying for his bar mitzvah. And I, in fact, I was talking to him the other day as I approached the end of this cycle. And he was saying that he doesn't remember a time when I wasn't doing this because I started <laughs> was five at, when he started. Right? Exactly. And now he's in seventh grade. And I often will bring up to him some of the interesting or unusual things that I've read about that week. But I, I don't feel that pressure to say, how does this apply to today? I, I feel very comfortable saying this is something that I don't believe in or I wouldn't want to follow because I think that it is outmoded or it's based on a different way of thinking. I mean, it's very unusual to do the same thing 
consistently for seven years. I mean, the, think about how the world has changed since you started since 2012. Is it weird to have this marker? Is it soothing? I mean, how has it how has it impacted your life? Or are you panicking because it's over now? Well, I, I am wondering, I'm going to have over. some free time now. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I mean, <laughs> start again. They, exactly. There are people who, as soon as this, it ends on one day, the next day it starts again. You can go back to the beginning. And I've actually thought I'd probably get a lot more out of it because now that I know a lot more about how I'm supposed to be doing this, I probably won't do that either. My own life has changed a lot. I've You're binging on Netflix. Now, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to get around to Game of Thrones. Right. I've changed jobs. I've changed apartments. I've seen my son grow up. And this has been this constant element. So it is something that I'm going to miss. Definitely. So you're a literary critic. What's your review? How does this tone? Give, it a, give the top yeah. of the letter. How many grade? stars? Right, exactly. Is it thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> it requires a totally different way of reading and thinking than I was used to. You can't read it in the way that you read a novel or, or even a history book or a nonfiction book. It requires a totally different way of thinking and reading. And in fact, you're not really supposed to say you're reading Talmud, you're supposed to say you're learning it because that shows that you're engaging your whole mind and it's a, a different kind of process. What I would say is it's really fascinating. It is a really interesting way of getting into the mindset of people who lived a long time ago and whose thoughts about God and religion continue to influence Judaism today. But you have to be able to put yourself at one remove and not get exasperated because one of the things that people do know about the Talmud when you think, use the word Talmudic in English, it means like overly complicated, very abstract, kind of silly and unnecessarily in the weeds. And there are a lot of things in the Talmud that if you took them at face value, you would say like, what is the point of this? Why are they talking about this? This is ridiculous. This would never happen. Over time, I've come to realize that the rabbis use sometimes outlandish concepts or situations in order to demonstrate principles that they're interested in. So one example in the tractate about Sukkot, about building the sukkah, one of the things they ask is, could you use an elephant as one wall of your sukkah? Could you just put an elephant there, build the other three walls around it, and the elephant would be one wall of your sukkah? Now, obviously, that would never happen. No, one, no Jew in history in 2,000 years has ever put an elephant in their sukkah and made it a wall. But what they're really trying to get at is what makes a wall? It, does it have to be stationary? Does it have to be made out of inorganic material? They're trying to get at basic definitions. The answer to that one in the end is you could use an elephant if it's dead because then it won't walk away. But if you have a live <laughs> elephant, it might walk away and your sukkah would be open and so you can't use it. Now, I get that reading the the Talmud as a modern person, as a secular person, you sort of like, I'm free of its binding principles and halachic regulations. But I'm wondering if completing the cycle has given you any kind of new insights into faith in general? I mean, did you walk away feeling like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to observe every one of these laws, but at the same time, I feel transformed in my own faith? I definitely think that it's given me a better understanding of Judaism than I ever had growing up in a Hebrew school. And I think that it's something that would be great for people to learn, even if they're not going to live by it, even if they're not Orthodox, they sh even if they're unorthodox, so to speak. <laughs> they should, that it's something that really tells you a lot about the basics of what Jewish thinking are, how Jews relate to Torah and to texts. And how different Judaism is from Christianity. I think that's another one of the big lessons of it. A lot of our ideas about what religion is in America are based on Christianity. Right. Judaism really has a completely different way of thinking about, for example, how do you read the Bible? How do you read the Torah? The idea of being a fundamentalist in Judaism doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, Jews have never been a religion where you just open up the Bible, read it, and you immediately understand it, and what it says guides your life. There's always this long tradition of commentary and explication and midrash, and you have to sort of go through that in order to get to what the meaning of Torah is for Judaism. So I feel like it definitely deepens and 
enriches my sense of what it means to be a Jew. So Adam Kirsch, you are but the finest in a long line of interpreters. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you very much. Happy New Year and happy new cycle. Thank you. That was our interview with Adam Kirsch. And you know, the thing I love about the fact that he might not be the person you would expect to take on Dafiomi, but this idea of basically taking ownership of these elements of Judaism that we might think are for other people, but aren't for us, we're not supposed to be doing that. That to me is part of this conversation, right? You know, he's like, why wouldn't you read the Talmud? Why wouldn't anyone who reads books read the Talmud? It's there for us as Jews. And I think that in light of what's going on is actually a really, really empowering stance to have. You can catch up with all of Adam Kirsch's columns at tabletmag.com slash dafyomi. That's tabletmag.com slash D-A-F-Y-O-M-I. And you could also open a Talmud. You don't have to commit to a seven and a half year cycle, but hopefully this made you a little bit curious. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox this week. Uh, lots of letters, but I only have time to handle two of them. Keep the mail coming. We're, we're working through that backlog, baby. Working through that backlog. Dear Unorthodox. So, I like a letter that begins, so. It makes me feel like we're mid-conversation. Doug writes, so. I converted under the reform movement. Am I considered a Jew? The reason I ask this is that the traditional Orthodox branch doesn't count me at all. Some have said that I need to convert through the traditional side. 
I just felt bitter about that. Yet I continue to keep going to shul on Shabbat when I can. Thank you for letting me ask this question. Yours, Doug. Okay, Doug, first of all, you don't have to thank us for letting you ask this question. Like, we we exist to answer your questions. We live for your mail. Doug, you converted into the Reform Movement. Are you considered a Jew? Well, you're considered a Jew by Reform Jews, so that's one answer. You're considered a Jew by me because you say that you're a Jew. And who am I to say, first of all, that your conversion wasn't legit? Who am I to say that you're not actually Jewish on your mother's, 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 mother's side? Like, I don't know. I don't play God. If people tell me they're Jewish, I honor what they tell me. Will some Jews not consider you Jewish? Uh, Yeah. But there are also some Jews who think that, like, I'm basically a goy, as they might put it, uh, because I'm not Shomer Shabbos. Like, all you can do is lead your authentic life and be the self you want to be. And if you believe that you're a Jew who is a Reformed, temple-going, Reformed Jew, then you are. And certainly the entire Reformed movement embraces and welcomes you. And I know plenty of Jews who are not Reformed who are happy to have you at their Shabbat table. I'm just going to tell you, like, don't, don't sweat it. Don't let the haters hate. I mean, haters are going to hate, but don't don't let them bring you down. Next time they try to bring you down, just offer them a, a shot of, of Slivovitz and invite them to a Shabbat dinner and bake a machala and hug them and love them and try to like diffuse their hate with your Jewy warmth. Okay. Second and final letter of the week from a longtime listener, Sue Parker Gerson from Denver, Colorado writes, hi, J. Crew, Happy Hanukkah. Thanks for coming to Denver. It was such a treat to spend time with you. You too, Sue Parker Gerson. She continues, in answer to the lovely Gentile listener who asked what to do with the mezuzah on their about to be renovated doorpost. Since the local synagogue did not return their call, shame on them, I would recommend reaching out to the nearest Chabad. Mezuzahs, especially ones with a kosher parchment scroll, can be really expensive. Perhaps Chabad is aware of a family in need of a mezuzah, but cannot readily afford one. It would make a really meaningful donation. Can't wait to hear what you have in store for us in 2020. Warmly, Sue Parker Gerson, Denver, Colorado. Sue, thank you for that note. And I want to add that, I mean, you've inspired me to greater heights of wisdom. Uh, Yes, not only could you go to the local Chabad rabbi and, and they consider it their mission to do outreach and to work with people uh, they'll happily take a, a mezuzah from a Gentile and surely re-gift it. But if you know any Jews, ask them, could you use an extra mezuzah? Because I, for example, have a mezuzah on my front doorpost and a few of our inside doorposts, like my children's bedrooms. But I don't have a mezuzah on every single doorpost inside the house. And all doorposts can take a mezuzah in a Jewish house. So lots of Jews might have one mezuzah but might have use for another. So if you know any Jews, you might also say, would you have any use for mezuzah? So I'm going to add that on top of Sue Parker Gerson's lovely and appropriate and entirely correct suggestion that a Chabad house, that's C-H-A-B-A-D, would be an appropriate place to bring the mezuzah. Friends, we love your mail. We live for your mail. I'm going to go on record as saying the mailbox is my favorite part of of the show. I love doing it with Stephanie Liel, but I also love doing it like privately, uh, talking into just the microphone and the the many tens of thousands of the J crew. I love the communion with the listeners. We are at 914-570-4869. And you can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And I hope you will. So back in September, we sat down with Rachel Bell. She's the host of the podcast Your Last Meal, where she interviews people about what their last meal on earth would be. So what you're about to hear is a few segments from her show featuring us, your three very hungry unorthodox hosts. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, 
a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, we've got a full house. No, no, I did not interview Stephanie, DJ, Danny, and Michelle Tanner, but there will be three whole guests on the show today. I interviewed all three hosts from one of my very favorite podcasts, Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. Stephanie Butnick, Leah Leibowitz, and Mark Oppenheimer are all editors of varying degrees at Tablet Magazine. They have written books and articles for major publications. They have taught at prestigious universities, spoken all around the country, and their individual accomplishments would take way too long for me to include in this intro. But these are some of the smartest, funniest people in media today. They have amazing chemistry, they're obviously great friends, but part of what makes the podcast work is how different they are. Liel is a politically conservative Israeli, Mark is a liberal New Englander with five children, and Stephanie is the token millennial with a cat named Cat Stevens. So were you all put together like a boy band? Was there like some like, you know, old dude with gold chains and a big a belly? a se- 72-year-old Jewish banker. Uh-huh. He's like, you know, we control this industry, so let's uh, let's see what we can do. You've He's like, of- we need the cute one, and then we need the sassy one. You've heard of K-pop, but this is more like J-pop. Yeah. I looked around the room at Tablet, and I said, who would it be fun to do a podcast with? You know, you want, you want difference, right? I mean, I think the problem with a lot of podcasts is people getting on and agreeing with each other. They're like, dude, do you know what's awesome is Air Supply. Yeah, Air Supply is awesome. Which is your favorite album? Greatest Hits. Totally the greatest hits. Why would you have anything else? And they just agree with each other a lot and a lot. I remember thinking that Liel and Stephanie and I represent three fairly distinct points of view. I'm here as like the resident lady um, to offer my lady opinions. So Um, it's just all tampons all all the the, time. Yes, yes. Um, What is the most Jewish tampon? Oh my God, we have not gotten um, that Right, yet. among things our listeners have never discussed. I think we an episode about this right now, please. We recorded this interview back in September when I flew to New York City to shoot a couple cooking videos with friend of the show, Isaac Mizrahi. If you want to watch those videos, just Google Isaac Mizrahi and Rachel Bell. That's what I did. It will come up. And lucky me, the stars aligned and Stephanie, Liel, and Mark were all free to record an episode while I was in the city. I grew up Jewish. I had a bat mitzvah. You're but still Jewish, baby. I'm still You're Jewish. Still, I know. You can still. check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> the Hotel California That's right. Judaism. That's right. But I think you probably get a lot of letters like this uh, of people who say that you are their Jewish community. As an adult, I don't really have a Jewish community. Also, and Seattle, so, it's tough. It is tough. The West Coast is tough. I don't everyone go to Temple. Lives, every, but everyone lives far from everyone, and they have to get in their mountain biking time and Plus their wellness guys, time. Yeah. Plus, and, you guys are so happy. Like, why yeah. would you search out a Jewish community? Like, everything is good. We have like our Subarus. Weather, like, come on. Yes. No, Seattle has you an amazing Sephardic kombucha. Jewish community. There's yes, like very rich, there are rich Jewish communities there. Let's you, just you be nice. Mean, you don't mean money-wise. That's I just want to be clear. Oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm going to save maybe? you from a lot of angry mail <laughs> and say, <laughs> no, like, you meant robust. In a mansion, <laughs> a mansion made of matzah. Yeah. Money I, coming out of their eyeballs. Mercer Island, just rich Jews. Yeah, you've been to our hood. You know about it. I have. So when I listen, I go, oh, that's a Jewish thing that's not just a my family thing like the interrupting you talked about how interrupting is a Jewish thing I had no idea I just thought that I was rude and annoying we all are rude and annoying so can you talk about some of these things that have been debated on the show and mostly on your Facebook page like Jews don't use a top sheet things like that well it's funny because we've reached the point now where people are just like saying things their family did and they're like is this Jewish <laughs> or are my parents just weird we took we out the garbage disapproves of me is that Jewish like, we yes, played par- that is Jewish we played Parcheesi not Monopoly is Parcheesi Jewier than Monopoly I'm a doctor not a lawyer <laughs> <laughs> but so the the big debates have raged um, our newest one actually is do Jews 
back into parking spaces or do they go like frontwards in? I don't drive a car here, so I don't even know how to talk about cars. But like this idea that Jews back into parking spaces because like you never know when you're going to have to peel out. And a lot of people are like, it's actually. It's the Holocaust. You see, you always just need to have your face forward ready to go. And someone's like, you know, no, if Holocaust. you hear see Nazis, you just have to press. <laughs> no time to back out. <laughs> no time. To and people back. are like, you know, I was in the army and like, they teach you that's how to park. That's, that's the true. safest way to park. And someone's I was like, and they did. I Wait. worked at the ADL. That's what their safety <laughs> training says. One person said, I took the Anti-Defamation League training and they tell you got to be. And I'm thinking, is that what they do? They terrify people to thinking that they, <laughs> but when so, you're at the Eastfield Mall in West Springfield, you better back in. Because what if the Nazis come? The top sheet thing. By the way, we just talk over each other the entire time. So (laughs) hopefully you will get to ask us what our last meal is. Stereotypes are real, my friends. I know. We're all like counting our money here. Um, (laughs) In Mercer Island. Yes. 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 A real rich community we have. Um, (laughs) But the top sheet, non-top sheet thing was, is really interesting. And basically the argument against the top sheet is like, it's a very European thing to do to not. In Europe, there's just no top sheets. And so like maybe Jews came from Europe more recently. I don't know, like something big happened there and we all had to come here. Um, So maybe that's why. There's no top sheets. And then there are people who are like, what do you mean I grew up with like the fluffiest top sheets around? And so that debate really raged. And yet there was really only one true debate. What was it, Mark? I think it would have been aluminum foil versus saran wrap. A hundred percent. Which one's the Jewy one? First of all, this is all about leftovers. For a which, long which, time. Is a, which is a very Jewish thing because we kind of are leftovers <laughs> yeah. ourselves. Uh, and, and then second of all, let us be very clear. No Jew uses Tupperware. Tupperware is like the most gentilic thing. Like there are, there's no reason. You make for your it. casseroles. I am the lone right. Jew casseroles. who uses Tupperware. Do you Why? put your Jello mold right. in it? I do. Your I cookie it doesn't salad. jiggle when you put it in the your Tupperware. Bacon and lime Jello casserole mold. I, she's not only are, is Tupperware just like a waste because you have to wash it and stuff, but like the pleasure of opening your fridge door and seeing just like <laughs> a seventeen <of> clumps <laughs> of silver. Be like, what's in there? So it's like a prize. It's a game dot, show every right? time. I'll take this. Oh, it's fish from so three days ago. It, it does get into some of like the more Jewish law or halacha, which is like if you want to like bake something in your oven, you can like cover it in tin foil. So like there are strictures that say like if you want to protect something that, that is that kosher, it doesn't touch something yes, that might like not be kosher. Yes, like milk mm. and meat, like all this stuff. Every like tin foil is more protective. In. It's funny because like <laughs> some people are like, no, no, I'm a saran wrap family. I think saran wrap is. I would say tin foil is more Jewish. I think that's that's where I come down. I grew up with tin foil. Like you know, it's best like a like a slice of pizza when you see that like. Uh, Oh, and, and then it's oh, like yeah. in that silver that, triangle. That triangle. Yeah, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a good day today. Breakfast is going to be sweet. But the thing that <laughs> complicates this is the Ziploc baggie, which is like the ultimate wasteful thing. Because yes. it's like a one-time use, at least in aluminum foil, you can clean it pretty quickly. But I will say my grandmother loves a good Ziploc do baggie. You, do you clean your you reuse No, no, no. I'm just saying that some people One do. Like, I wash my Ziplocs out Because you and like, dry care them. about the environment. That's yeah. why you use Tupperware, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know what's interesting? Is I, this, is, this is a tangent that has no Jewish angle whatsoever, except that it's all Oppenheimer. We'll find one. Um, I grew up with wax paper. And I think it was a oh. 70s. They were worried about, there was a lot of like Naderite, you know, consumer protection. They were worried, I think, about the metal in the foil leaching, which I think they don't worry about anymore. But but back then, maybe they, they did. And then saran wrap just seemed wasteful, plastic, blah, blah, blah. And, and I and a lot of the other little red diaper babies, little hippie children, were served. Or it was often wrapped in wax paper. episodes ago, I talked about how the cinnamon raisin bagel is the goy's bagel, that no self-respecting Jew <laughs> would eat it. Because I'm true. I'm on Jew Island. Is this true? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Is that like a rainbow bagel? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, bagels 
themselves are no longer Jewish. We used to have them, but anything you could buy at the airport in Memphis is no longer we lost our, it. our people's it food. It got culturally appropriated so away you're, from you're us. So you're welcome to in America, do whatever you want. Like education. That's right. <laughs> the Gentiles are doing it now, Like too. being smart. <laughs> bagels <laughs> is something we no longer do well. Well, so bagels like, came over. The Bialy, there's a town in Poland. It's called Bialystok. And so like that's where the Bialy was made. And so this is like a real And once a Jewish year, there's a festival thing. like a Woodstock. Exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, but so basically, you know, Polish immigrants brought bagels and bialis over and were making them in push carts on the Lower East Side. And so they are deeply, deeply Jewish. But it's sort of like the way like pizza is like, quote, Italian now in America. But like that actually isn't the pizza, like deep dish pizza. I don't know. I just think that it's sort of the way that these right. cultural products become so popular. They ultimately transcend the ethnic group. That so if you go to Italy made, and you have yeah. pizza, be like, I wish I was in New Haven. I had a moment yesterday where I was... At a bagel shop, and they it was black seed bagel, and they were making bagels in front of you, like putting them into a wood fired oven. And it was an African American dude making them, and I instantly flashed to like my grandpa was a Bialy baker in New York for decades, and I just thought, whoa, this is so interesting. Like our food survived, and now it's here. Like America, man, everybody's making it. It's just yeah. And I've met someone who told me they didn't know bagels were Jewish. It's really interesting, right? I mean, we are so many generations in at this point. We had a guest on our show who was talking recently about how this was someone who teaches Hebrew school who was saying that when she holds up a picture of a challah, the kids are like, what's that? What's the fancy bread? And these are Jewish kids at Hebrew school. And <laughs> the only debate to have is whether it's challah or whether yeah. you keep the chet or... Oh, yeah. Or well, go, that's something, challah. too. I don't know if you listened to my hummus episode. Hummus. Of that, where now I've decided there are two things. There is hummus that you yeah. get at Trader Joe's, and then there's hummus that and you get hummus, that actually tastes good. Which and you I guess, get when you sit in the Ashdod in Israel with uh, two people named Shlomi. No, I said... Hala on the show, and people wrote in being like, you host a Jewish podcast, say Hala. And now I say Hala. It's, it's a guttural ch. It's a hard sound to make, so, but now I make it. Can I just tell you, I'm really sensitive to this. I'm from the ch part of the of the world. Here, I'll be like... Israel? Israel. But the chuz leave. I, I say hummus and Hala. Because it's I America. Like, because, right, you're not being, oh, may I have this is America, speak Jewish. Baguette. Like, no, just speak like a normal <laughs> freaking American. Like, <laughs> like, oh, por favor. Like, just come on, man. I, I used to think that was super pretentious. Like, I remember a time in my life before I was employed by the Jewish media conspiracy where... It pays very well. So well. All rich. Money just coming <laughs> out of my community. pockets and island, baby. That when I heard friends who were deeper into the, the Jew thing say like, you know, oh, you know, what are you doing for the Chagim? You know, will you have some challah and some hummus? I'd be like, oh, shut the <laughs> up. You're from, you know, you're from Peoria. Like, what are you talking about? And you need yeah, and I do, I do, I have this memory of this woman who always called it cilantro. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. I was like, like in my mind, like I, my kids know that's the joke. If they're right. like, once in a while, I'd be like, do you want some cilantro? Yeah. Which is, you bought which the is, cilantro at the stop and shop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is just hamming it up in this pseudo ethnic way. Hamming it up. Hamming it up. My mother in law, wonderful woman, gifted in many, many ways, probably the best uh, elementary school teacher ever, certainly the best mother in law. She can't do the ch. It's a, it's a Jewish speech impediment. Mm. And there are people who can't, and we should be sensitive to that. Like, By the way, aren't there try. speech therapists that like focus on In that? Israel? I'm sure there are. I'm like, sure. Do, do, repeat after me. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I had a Cuban-American roommate who couldn't roll his R's. <laughs> and oh, it was like the old, wow. which in English, which in English don't matter none, but, right. if, but in Cuban, oh, that's so in, Spanish, <laughs> in Spanish, you better be able to roll some yeah. R's. Do you have an opinion on bagels? Have you tried the St. Louis style bread slice bagel? I want to hear from you. Send me a note on Instagram. I'm at your last meal podcast. And while you're on Instagram, tap, tap, tapping around your phone, leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just text a link of the podcast to a friend. 
We appreciate you helping to spread the word. And when we come back, three last meals, courtesy of Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. And Liel's last meal comes with this incredible story. He told this story on The Moth. It's actually one of the best stories I have ever heard on The Moth. Uh, It has to do with bank robberies and also his last meal. Stick around. Welcome back to the show. It's called Your Last Meal. You already knew that. We have a lot of guests today, all three hosts of Unorthodox. And since he is the editor-at-large of Tablet Magazine, and he actually had to leave early to catch a train, we're going to let Mark Oppenheimer go first. It's going to be a fishamajig from Friendlies with a coffee fribble. Wait, I don't know any of these words except for friendlies, which I am aware of. What's a frigamajig? Oh, oh, you're from the West Coast. I'm you from the West sweet, Coast. sweet, sweet, innocent babe. A frigamajig with a fretzel? No, you were too, you were too busy eating In and Out <laughs> Burgers. A with a treble, you know. <laughs> you were too busy eating In and Out Burgers. So you're and, eating a frisbee. Um, going to the taco truck. <laughs> going to the taco truck and Break surfing, it down, Mark. surfing big waves. So the um, the fried haddock sandwich at Friendly's, which is it's just a perfect, it's perfect fry. It's perfect consistency, reprocessed fish, browned. And then it's put between um, very white bread toast with a perfect brown on it, mm. with a slice of yellow American cheese, and the bread is super buttered. And then it's uh, with and with a lot of tartar sauce. What is it called again? A fishamajig. Oh, a fishamajig. Okay. There's a website for this. Like there's there's people who know friendlies. If you're from Maine to New York to upstate New York, down into Pennsylvania somewhat, you know the fishamajig. And it's just <laughs> delicious. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I wouldn't eat a fishamajig. But you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna fall off the wagon when I'm 120. You're at so a bad. And I mean, it's gonna be naughty. <laughs> And then it's going to come with a fribble, which they used to have two milkshakes at Friendly's. You could get a milkshake or you get a fribble. And the fribble was like five more scoops of ice cream. It was the thickest milkshake. It wasn't a milkshake. It was a fribble. They have since, in their poor rebranding, and Friendly, sadly, is in decline. All milkshakes there now are fribble. But it was the old, extra thick milkshake and, and certainly coffee. There's no other kind of milkshake. No. Fish and a fribble with their very sort of limp fries was uh, ambrosia. <laughs> that was happiness, you know? Hall and Oates was playing over the sound system. <laughs> have one, your children ever had this meal? Well, my children have never had meat um, because they're very fundamentalist vegetarians. We wouldn't Or not, fish. Uh, or fish. I don't know if they've had fribbles. They've gone to Friendly's for sure because grandma and grandpa. I mean, you know, where do you go with grandma and grandpa? But, but Friendly's. But I don't know that they've had the fribble. What is the significance of this meal for you? Oh, I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts, the birthplace of Friendly's. And so did you just grow up eating this all of the there time? There was a Friendly's on every street corner. Oh, my God. Like, that's what, like, that, that was our McDonald's. the streets were paved with fribbles? Yeah. I mean, there was one, you could get the fish jig at the Friendly's on Belmont, on Sumner, at the Longmeadow Shops, downtown on Main Street. But I've never seen him so happy, by the like, way. Like, that was, that was what it was. And You're he's glowing. He's back, back home now. In <laughs> the promised land. That, it flows with milk and honey fribbles. It, it, Ooh, that would be that's a good where fribble you went. flavor. That's where you went before prom, after prom, before confirmation after confirmation question before the oscars after it's it's where you lived are you sure you're jewish <laughs> you said be, you said white bread you said milkshake it should all be said, everything about this is kosher style if you were keeping kosher style there's no bacon there's no and just bring some lactates with you and you'll be fine right. mm-hmm. oh that by the way is fake news the whole jews are lactose intolerant you thing. are insane i literally we do fight not about know a, a single person who does not reach for their pocket to take a lactate come meet every oppenheimer we're just we and live right. on ice cream like old tupperware over here yeah i can eat it too in old my tupperware, tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> old sally tupperware here's the thing i think charles tupper who invented tupperware might have been a jew i'm gonna google this Earl Silas Tupper. Yes, uh, no. Silas. Not a Jew. <laughs> All right, Stephanie Butnick, what is your last meal? Okay, so I don't know what Friendly's is, but I do know what Ben's Deli is. And it's this kosher deli, which is sort of besides the point. But um, there was one near where I lived on Long Island. And to me, like, the ultimate comfort food meal. Because if I'm going to die, like, I'm going to be pretty stressed. Um, 
about it. And then, you know, if I'm assuming this, I, I know that it's going to happen. Um, so my meal would be, and I don't want to be like such a stereotype to be like deli, but it's a very specific deli meal. It is a salami sandwich. Those like really piled high, like kosher salami, mm-hmm. not like the thick Hebrew national, though I do love that. And not that like fancy Genoa, like non-kosher stuff. That's the thing. Like I want like almost like bologna salami. Yes. Um, on like a piece of rye bologna. bread. Bologna, yes. And then... And then you, oh, God, so good. And then I want a matzo ball soup because to me that is like what will make me happy in any situation. Like that is what I go for. I'm like a, I, I actually am triggered by food. Like to me that brings me comfort and home. And if I ever am like having a stressful day, the other thing I want is latkes, like a real crispy deadly latka, nothing too thick, nothing too thin, like a nice, a nice patty, a nice like puck size latka. And then, like, I would go at Dr. Brown's. I'm like, interrupting you, obviously. You should know. This is my that, meal. I, I know, but you should know that there's there's a, a big debate around this this community. I think latkes are a sham. I think they're the worst holiday well, food This ever. is my fear <gasps> no. about my last meal, that you're going to come in and I ruin know. it. You're going to be like, I literally have <laughs> one more bite. That's you're so stressed. Like, and you're ordering this? But, I don't like latkes at restaurants. I've never had a good restaurant yeah. latka because I learned I did a little story and they mostly make them ahead of time and then refry them they're and they're like not patties. good yeah. but when they're made fresh in the moment you have to eat them yes. as soon as they come out they're so good but look like I'm not making a latka for my last meal no. I want it made and served to me and if it's not perfect it's fine because it's like if it's hot it's good and then I want <laughs> do you want ah. sour cream and applesauce no no toppings <gasps> I'm like a no, no condiment person I okay. don't like mustard I, I like ketchup on fries just because I feel like they need something but like I believe the food should be good enough to stand alone without a condiment so your Although- sandwich is condimentless as well. Oh, yes. Just it's salami just and bread. And salami. Yeah, okay. I, I, was, I went to a very nice wedding last weekend, and you know what they served as a condiment on top of the latka? Brisket. Ooh. Oh, I like that. I mean, That I'll, was good. Um, but yeah, and so it would be like a Dr. Brown's. I don't know where I fall between. I'm more of like a black cherry, but I think it's like a diet black cherry soda. That's Not, the best. Just because it's too sweet otherwise. And then like a series of pickles. I don't feel very strongly about pickles, but like, I mean, I'm very strongly pro-pickle, but I know there's a very intense debate over the dill pickle versus the sour, versus the full sour versus the half sour. Yeah. I want a full sour just for this purpose because like I wanted to cut the like just other grossness of the meat. And once <laughs> and again, I, I will be there be like, why are you having the wrong kind of pickle at your last <laughs> meal? Mark Oppenheimer wants a fish of a jig from Friendly's with a coffee fribble. If you don't know, Friendly's is an East Coast chain that's been around since 1935. And Stephanie Butnick wants a classic deli meal at Ben's Deli on Long Island. Kosher salami on rye, matzo ball soup, latkes, pickles, and a Dr. Brown's diet black cherry soda. Ben's has been around since the 1970s and has several locations in Long Island, New York City, and of course, Boca. (laughs) Once the Jews retire gotta go down to Boca. They gotta go to Florida. All right, so you may have noticed there is one last meal missing. We will get to Liel's last meal after the break. And it is so worth the wait. I mean, you only have to wait like a minute anyway. The story behind Liel's last meal involves a famous Israeli bank robber and a classic Israeli comfort food. All right, Liel, let's hear your last meal. So, my father was the oldest son of this very wealthy industrialist family, sort of like the Johnson & Johnson of Israel. Uh, and in you know pure form, he did what wealthy sons of wealthy families do, which is nothing. Devoted all of his time to his hobbies, which were the sort of like of of, of the masculine, muscular sorts, like guns and drinking and motorcycles. And this was in Israel. This was in Israel in the eighties, which is a, a kind of a very wild place. 
And at some point, when he turned 35, I think, his father, my grandfather, summoned him over to have a talk. And he said, look, you know, you have to do something. You, you know, it doesn't have to be a job, but it has to be some sort of productive activity. And my father was, you know, he was born in 1953, which means that he sort of hit, you know, puberty around the kind of time of the 60s in Woodstock. And he really believed in this, this saying of like, oh, you know, follow your bliss, do what you love. And so he decided to do what he loved. And the thing that he loved most, as it turns out, was robbing banks. Um, he thought this would be a really good and sort of funny pastime. Uh, and it turned out he had this like God-given talent for it. He was, it was sort of like, you know, I like to say he was like, it's like the Elon Musk of the stick-up job because what he would do, he would um, rob a bank, which would take him 45 seconds, which is what it takes me to decide to get off the couch and go get a snack from the fridge. And then he would hop on his motorcycle, which he parked right outside, right around the corner, up a ramp he had custom-built into this van he had rented, and then he would stop and he would ponder the sort of seminal question of bank robbing, which is where is the last place you'd ever look for a bank robber? And, and the answer, and, and any of your listeners who are contemplating this line of work may, may want to pay attention, is the bank. Uh, and so he took off his helmet and his jacket and tucked the gun into his pocket and walked very calmly around the corner into the bank, which was now a crime scene, right? And so this police officer would come up to him and be like, sir, you can't be here. You have to leave. This is now a crime scene. And my dad, which at this point is just this middle-aged looking dude with a receding hairline, would say, oh, man, my wife would kill me if I don't make like a quick deposit. Can I please just real quick? And the police officer said, okay, well, you know, be, be quick about it. And my dad would take all the money he had robbed not three minutes earlier and deposit it back do the same bag. And this is the 80s. There were no computers in Israel at that point. So, like, it's virtually untraceable. It was genius. And so he did this for a really, really long time and got super cocky. He started doing, like, two banks a day, three banks a day, banks in different towns, like, like you know, Zickfeld Follies. Like, he's doing dance moves and routines and stuff. Uh, and eventually, you know, he, he gets arrested. And we go. And this is through your childhood. I was uh, 11 when he started his pursuits. I was 13 and a half when he was arrested. Uh, it was actually funny because the the robber, who for a long time was nameless, um, was this big hero. And he was my hero because I was, you know, a dumb kid. And for me, like, the guy who, like, you know, screws with the police and never gets caught is, like, a cool guy, right? He's like a pop culture hero. And and then he's arrested. And it turns out he's not some cool pop culture hero. He's my, wow. you know, schlubby middle-aged dad. Um, and life changes dramatically for us because we go from living in, like, the nicest, toniest suburb, like, right by the beach with, like, all the privilege and, and, you know, trappings of wealth to being cavity searched once a week while visiting dad in prison, which is a really different scene. And so everything is topsy-turvy. And the one thing, we're Jews. The one thing we turn for, to for comfort is? Food. It's food. And so herein lies the last meal. Um, it's schnitzel, which for those of our <laughs> lovely gentilic and or non-Germanic listeners, uh, is just a, it could be pork, but in my case, obviously it was chicken that is lightly breaded and fried, um, mashed potatoes mm. and a good, finely chopped Israeli salad. Explain the salad for people who don't the know. The salad is basically tomatoes, cucumbers, scallions or onions. Uh, some peppers, some radishes, a lot of olive oil, a lot of lemon juice, salt, pepper, 
never lettuce or greens or anything like that. Um, diced really fine, really kind of nice, sprightly looking, bright, colorful, delicious salad. I had this meal for lunch and dinner every day for five years. Why? I don't know. It was the only constant in my life. I, I think I felt like everything else made no sense. Literally, uh, it was possible for life to be appended in, in a moment's notice. Like, there was literally a knock on the door, right? And the police officer came and said, hey, have some news that might, um, you know, impact your life in, in some way. And if that's the case, there's really one thing you can control. And that's the one thing I could control. It, it was this meal that, that made it seem like there was some sort of through line to life. Life today looked nothing like life yesterday, with the exception that I'm still eating schnitzel. <laughs> that's the one thing about reality I can control. Did your mom make this meal twice a day, or where were you getting somebody to give you this constantly? We went to live with my grandmother. She made it a lot, and then at some point, I just learned how to make it, and, and I just started making it. And, and, and then at some point, when, when things got really dark during high school, and I didn't really have the time or the inclination to sit down for meals, I do the grossest thing ever, and I've never publicly spoken about it. Ooh, do you make a sandwich out of this? I put them all in the blender. <gasps> yep. And so you would drink a schnitzel mashed I just, potato I just, Israeli salad? I put the schnitzel the mashed potato and Israeli salad in the blender. I blended them together. I put them in like a to-go cup because I was like roaming a lot. I didn't like being home because it was like very stressful. I just like I had my to-go cup with my sustenance. <laughs> it's literally like a sippy cup, right? What They're does like, it taste like? Yeah. Oh, revolting. But then you just put some ketchup in it and shut evens everything. A ketchup out. drizzle. I know. Do you remember you said? I mean, I don't know if it was like a little hyperbole, but like every day for five years. Like, do you it's remember? It's not hyperbole. It's accurate description. Do you remember the first meal you ate that wasn't that when you suddenly went? I can move on from this. I joined the the scouts, which in Israel is a very different thing than it is yeah. here. It's basically like a paramilitary organization. And so we would go for, you know, three, four, five, not five, but three or four months to the woods to like scout. And so I don't think I would have had that every day there. Yeah. And so I wasn't prissy about it. But if it was home, it had to be that. And so now you make it for your family? I do. Mm -hmm. Like once a week. Oh, it's so good. Actually, last time Stephanie was over, I think that's exactly what I made. It's honestly such a comforting meal. Every culture has a fried chicken, right. and that yeah. is Israeli's. And you also, Israel's fried chicken. it's so great to just like unload aggressions because the, the, sh the, the chicken has to be really thin. So you have to put them on a cutting board and then just go to town. Then be like, my life... Bang, 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 bang. Like, you know, you really sort of unleash all the fury to make this chicken perfect. And that was Stephanie Budnick, Mark Oppenheimer, and Liel Leibovitz's Last Meal. So you put out a book earlier this year, Tablet put out a book called The 100 Most Jewish Foods, A Highly Debatable List. Of course, the book had traditional things you would expect in it. There was matzo ball soup and there was brisket, but then there were things like bacon and sweet and low and leftovers and the used tea bag. The funny thing is, so we had all this stuff and we were doing this photo shoot and we, the idea was to get all 100 foods on one table together, which was like a, a Jewish Herculean task. And we had, you know, orders coming in from the deli with the pastrami sandwich. We had, you know, these amazing food stylists and, and prep people built, like cooking a brisket. And we had all of our staff like working on this. And we get there and we're looking at the Google Docs list, which is printed out on the wall. And someone's like, I'm just going to count to make sure we have everything. So we count. And because like one actually isn't one on Google Docs, we only had 99 foods. Ugh. And so we are like 
what we we can't we have to do this today. There's no way all this food is is lasting till tomorrow. There's like you know someone like literally like using a paintbrush on the black and white cookies to like get, get them really nice and shiny. Like we had to do this, and so. We're looking around and someone, I think it was the food sauce, was like, you know, my grandma would always use the same tea bag over and over again. Like, what about that? And I ran to grab my teacup and I had a tea bag that I'd been using all day, just refilling the hot water on. And it was like sort of like limp and, and, and sort of colorless. And I was like, well, I have one right here. So my actual tea bag is in the book that ended up coming out the from this. The tea bag that you received for your bath mitzvah. Yes, yes, my 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 birthright. The tea, the bag. tea bag that was included in your dowry when yes, you got married. Yes, exactly. I've been carrying it with me my whole life. Um, but that is the entry that people connect with the most. You know, everyone, obviously, you know Hala's on that list. You know everyone knows those foods. People are like, my family, I think, had one tea bag our entire lives. <laughs> this is so deeply ingrained in our psyches. Maybe it's because of so many people growing up in the Depression. This obviously transcends just Jewish culture, but that was the one that spoke to people so much. And we were like, that was literally not on the list. <laughs> that was a total fluke. And there was something so magical and perfect about that. Listen to the Unorthodox podcast. Every episode, they interview a Jew of the week and a Gentile of the week. And you'll learn lots of things and you'll probably laugh. And if you're looking for a last minute Hanukkah gift, pick up their new book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. From Abraham to Zabar's and everything in between. You can find this episode of Your Last Meal, as well as the episodes where Rachel interviews William Shatner, Rain Wilson, Isaac Mizrahi, on your favorite podcast platform or at yourlastmealpodcast.com. Thanks for having us on, Rachel. You're the best. The holidays may be over, but there is still time to get the greatest Jewish book of all time besides the Talmud. That is the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Buy your copy today and start 2020 on the right Jewish foot. That's tabletbank.com slash newish Jewish. Friends, may I may I start the Mazel Tovs this week? Go right ahead. Yeah. I would like to give a Mazel Tov to all of the Jews by choice, the converts and the people thinking about becoming Jewish, the people returning home, the people who know that they're Jewish in their souls, who are finally going to get the say-so from a rabbi. What a crazy time to want to join this people, right? I mean, talk about taking something on with seriousness, with intentionality, with purpose, about really looking at your time on earth and saying, what can I do to be the self I want to be, to be authentic? to really dance along the journey. I mean, I'm sounding all new agey. The gratitude that I have to these people who are reminding me who I am is immense. So mazel tov to them. I share in every word you just said, hallelujah, amen, selah, to that. I, I want to add to that, at the end of this very difficult week, just a mazel tov to so many people. You know, first of all, the police officers who really sprung into action after the attack in Muncie and were able to catch the guy almost immediately, to the community in Muncie, who not only stood up and defended each other, but, you know, according to the reports in Tablet Magazine and elsewhere, really responded by bounding back and having a Hanukkah celebration that was three times as joyous, three times as rowdy, even when there was still literally blood on the floor. And you know what? Also to all these people who went on Twitter and Facebook and all these platforms that we like to make fun of, but responded with like really kind words of endorsement by offering to pray for those wounded and by reminding us that when there's darkness, uh, really the only response is more light. That really made a difference. So to everyone, may we have no more crises to handle, but if we have crises, may we continue to handle them just like this. And I wanted to shout out a few far-flung listeners who I have heard about recently. I wanted to shout out Madison Clarer, whose sister Stephanie came to uh, the Hadassah event that I moderated with Josh Cross a few weeks ago. And she came up to me and she said, I have to get a selfie. My sister loves you and the show. And that to me is just such a nice, um, first of all, I love taking selfies, but you know, it, it's such a nice 
nice reminder that our community really is strong and out there. And my friend Lydia Simmons' friend Rachel, whose mom Karen loves the show and whose friends Jenna Rinkoff and Lynn Garfunkel saw us live in Denver. I love hearing through sort of the texting grapevine about people who are part of our community. Uh, One of them flew from Columbus to Denver to attend. So I hope we gave her a tote bag. But to me, it's just really, really meaningful that there is a community here that we're part of and, and we really love. And finally, lest we forget, our producer, Sarah Fredman Ader, her mom, Adina Fredman, read McGillie in a maximum security women's prison last Purim, and we we shouted her out for that. But now a mazel tov to Adina Fredman for finishing Dafyomi. I, I envy and honor you. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the internet. The World Wide Web, you might call it, at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or use your voice and call us, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live. God, we're doing it a lot this year. So if you want to book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. You should be wearing and carrying unorthodox as well. Post-Hanukkah shopping, pre-Hanukkah shopping for next Hanukkah, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, and onesies with our names or the unorthodox logo on them. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Ilana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Chaim Rottenberg of Muncie, New York. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is converting to Judaism. Shalom, friends. Get the best literary accessory of 2020. The newest Jewish encyclopedia is the hottest book of 2020. It was published in 2019, but it's still hot. It's sizzling to the touch. Let's get it at tabletmag.com slash newest Jewish. <laughs> the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Your Bubby's favorite book. <laughs>